This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode of Our Fair City is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad. Please enjoy the show. All right. So welcome, everybody, to our listener questions episode for Our Fair City. I, I think it might even be safe to say our last listener questions episode. So there might, there might be tears. Um, no predictions. But let's go around the table real quick and everybody introduce themselves. I'm Eleanor, Managing Director for HeartLife NFP. Uh, and then going around the table. Hello, this is the voice of Jim McDaniel. I am one of the writers, also Chamberlain voice. I am Ryan Sheely. I was the lead sound designer for Our Fair City, as well as multiple characters, most notably Herbert West. I'm Ellie Maitland. I voiced Switchblades Cobalt and Cassie Wilkins on the show. I also co-wrote a Fringe performance for the show, and I have also performed live Foley in those Fringe performances for the show. I'm Stephen Poon, and I wrote the music for the show. I'm Abby Dowd, and I play Sandy the Mole Person and Aaron Davenport. I'm Mark Soloff. I helped write the show, and I played Archibald Funny Pants, Simon, and Dr. Morrow. And I'm Jeffrey Gardner. I'm the executive producer for Our Fair City. Uh, I directed the episodes and I played the computers and uh, one half of most of the thugs of Our Fair City. <laughs> we'll get that to li- that later. And the famous Cromwell. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, Which the we'll kind of? We'll, we'll get to that later. The prime uh, thug. The prime thug. <laughs> thug. Numero one. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Okay, I'm just going to dive right into this, uh, and I want to talk about time travel. So the soap lady asked us, what kind of world does the time traveler come from, and what did they remember about heart life? Well, I guess this is on me. Um, th- this is not necessarily canon, I'm going to say. I think it's worth jumping in and saying that, like, you know, I think treat everything you hear as C-level canon if you want it to be. I'm sure we'll have lots of strange theories and uh, we'll probably disagree with each other. So take what you want and leave the rest. Okay, then, with that disclaimer. So way back when, in like season two, when we were still figuring out this podcast thing and the internet thing and the having a website thing, I wrote a bunch of stuff that went on the blog that if you go back far enough, you can maybe find. Um, And one of them was an essay about uh, basically how Krakens were attacking ships because we had killed all of the whales and how we need to go back and how we need to invent time travel to save a bunch of whales. 
<laughs> You're talking about Star Trek Four. Yes. <laughs> that that was the inspiration. But it took place. It was the Tempest Cetacea, which then, if you noticed in the last Time Traveler episode, is the name of the society. It's the Time Whale Society. <laughs> But because that was their original purpose. So this took place before the events of Heart Life when the climate was going to crap. Um, Because, like, also part of the thing was that everything was freezing, which was forcing the Krakens to come and attack ships. And so my, my time travel theory is that the time travelers actually come from before Heart Life. Like, the, the time travel society was formed... Between, like, everything. The Tempest Cetacea. Yeah, the Tempest Cetacea was formed in that intermediary period, like, when everything was going wrong. But now they kind of just exist outside of time and just go around trying to fix things as best they can. So are they are they fixing their own messes? Is it one of those things where you try to heal a seam here and you pop another one over there and that's why they keep going back and forth? Well, that yes, and that's definitely what ended up happening right. with the, with our time traveler. She made a bunch of messes and then has been trying to fix them so that we don't all end up meat wall. It, you know, it's funny. I never think of time traveler stories as like, you know, I, I it, it never occurred to me that they could be time travelers from the past rather than from the future. Uh, so I kind of I kind of adore that. Gracie is pregnant. <laughs> I get it. Nice play. Uh, <clears throat> it'd be kind of hard to beat that, but does anybody else have a theory about where the time traveler comes from? I'm not going to try and beat that. I mean, if nothing else, if they are from further in the future than Heart Life, it does make the whole story like a little more hopeful in that like it means that humans survived enough long enough after the events of our fair city to invent time travel and still be around. So, yeah, I think that's neither here nor there, though. So for our second time travel question, this is from Fry. So now the time travels come back around into the story. What alternate versions of the storyline would you have liked to see? Yeah, like what's the mirror universe to the version of the story we already told? That's a good question. Right? It's a really good question. Sandy and Pete definitely get together. Because it shouldn't have happened. So in the alternate timeline, it definitely happens. (laughs) Yeah. Not saying I want it to happen, but it would. So I'm going to push you on this. So they get together. What's different as a result? Like, how does it play out? Well, Because then Clay just kind of disappears out of the picture, right? Ah, Yeah. I think Clay and Old Man end up just like palling around. <laughs> Maybe Good. Clay Good. becomes Old Man in the alternate universe. The, the amazing adventures of Old Man and Clay. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I, I definitely think that uh, Clay is far more cavalier in the alternate. See where you did there. Uh, I would I would have loved to see an alternate timeline where Morrow's revolution succeeded. Mm. Um, and we have heart life ruled by Morrow and the mole people and seeing what that would look like. Wow. Fascinating. Um, and then like having like, again, seeing the Mirror Universe episode where it's, you know, the, the scrappy pencil pushers with uh, like uh, rubber band based crossbows that fling pencils. Uh, I think, um, I mean, this isn't necessarily a version, a, a universe that I'd like to see, but one of the like big 
turning points or, or incidents that Heart Life was trying to manufacture was the hope of Heart Life exploding and being a sort of thing analogous to a, a giant almost terrorist attack that would galvanize or polarize the population back into lockstep with Heartlife's company patriotism. So everyone's super loyal and super against outsiders after that, you know, attack by rogue elements um, that failed and all the ants came out of the hole. Uh, I can't think of anything more outsider than ant people, though, in all fairness. They are super outsiders. Um, but, I, you know, it, it would be like a real bummer of a series to see everybody kind of get swept up in this, like, fear and paranoia and um, totalitarianism. And maybe at the end of the series, you know, the directors would have won. Everyone would be sad and wearing suits. A lot less compelling narrative arc, but I think a valid one to like thought experiment of like what if they had succeeded with the hope of heart life and what they meant to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, uh, I've thought a couple times about this, about how interesting I think it would be because for the duration of the show from the moment we meet Andrew, he's just a punching bag and he ends up, you know, becoming one of the, one of the key architects of the survival of the species. But having been influenced by Herbert over the course of many years and with the death of Cassie, I thought it would have been a really interesting twist to have Snidge snap and become like a, a the darkest part of Herbert. Like Herbert is mostly just about having fun, really, when you come down to it. And Snidge is all about emotion. And if he was emotionally wrecked by Cassie, having him with the the arsenal of of scientific knowledge that he gained through working with Herbert and Caligari, turning that into an evil science uh, sort of arch nemesis for Caligari and Herbert, I thought that would have been really cool. So like like Herbert's recklessness uh, and like scientific acumen and but also like Caligari's methodical determination and like willingness to stick to a plan. Yeah. Just driven by like deep, deep grief. Exactly. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. Like hearing hearing Snidge snap and turning that corner would be a really disheartening and unsettling feeling, I think. Yeah. So there was uh, an idea that I toyed with for a while and thought about like working into one of the comics that was going to be basically a Back to the Future 2 set in OFC where the time traveler came to Sandy and Clay after they started dating and was like, there's something wrong with your kids, and then would jump like two to three years ahead. So we'd see like what was happening to all of the characters. This this idea I, I think I had in like around season three or season four, so... To, to put it in context, but, like, one of the kids was going to be uh, leading the ant people, kind of like how Sully does, and another one was going to be uh, a corporate scientist. And there there were going to be three kids, and each one of them was going to be in, like, a different area of the city messing, th- messing things up, and they were going to have to try and fix it. That's the worst. <laughs> I love it. That's the worst. All right, let's pick another question. So do we think Erin Davenport survived the ant invasion? No, she's the worst. She should die. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. She's living it up with the ant people. So either they ate her, which she deserves, or somehow she became one of the ant people. Because she's just 
oh no, is she like wearing an ant like carapace and like going Probably. around just like clicking at people? Probably. <laughs> well, that's terrifying. To to sort of back up your theory though, would she have abandoned her post when when it started mm. flooding? Probably not. In that case, she's probably dead. Yes! <laughs> Next. She doesn't need to survive. All right, so going to a character I like better, what do, what do we think Allison found out in the world? All right, so um, this is, I, I'll uh, kind of adapt my answer uh, for when people, you know, are asking, like, oh, what's your, you know, what's your apocalypse plan? What's your zombie survival plan? Um, and mine is to grab a couple of like-minded people and start uh, tattooing great works of literature all over our skin and become like book monks out uh, somewhere way out away from civilization and just like kind of count on people's need to have some kind of memory of times before to help us survive. Uh, and so, I don't know, I think if if she's heading towards New Haven, and um, maybe like finds people who have raided the Yale libraries and uh, started like writing books on themselves. I kind of, I've always like in the back of my head liked that theory. And also kind of the fun of that like big repository of knowledge and a society based on um, a very different kind of archetype and societal construct than heart life I think would be fun. If uh, you know, if if a group of librarians found a way to survive the apocalypse, as well as a group of actuaries, it's like a canticle for Allison. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. All right, so I'm I'm just gonna do a couple of like character questions now since we're on that theme. So this is a question about a character from one of the live shows. Did Izzy go to the cube? Uh, I would imagine that she did, but not permanently. I feel like she's been prone to a couple of re-education scenarios in her time, and that's one of the reasons why she's as good at her job as she is. But it hasn't done wonders for her temper. <laughs> so this is not like, this is, she does, but this is not the first time she's been in. Uh, she's probably, how many strikes do you think you get cube-wise? Before you go to the hyper cube? Yes. Be before or you before go, you're gleaming the cube? Before you go to the Canadian cube, the movie? Yes. <clears throat> I think it's either got to be six, because cubes, uh, <laughs> or, or like, there is no limit. Like, you just keep going back, and like, it never gets better or worse. You just keep doing it. I don't know. I mean, I, th I think it depends on the, the person, because I, I don't think with, like, Izzy, she... she Izzy was like a a regular policy. She wasn't necessarily like a problem. I think that there are probably there are people kind of like uh, our main cast who are like serial problems who end up just it's better to just keep them in the cube or like old man who's like yeah he was a rabble rouser he deserves in the cube where Izzy's just like. Eh, she's maybe not as efficient as she used to be, but she doesn't need. So she's more like uh, her cube visit is on par with having gotten booted. Mm -hmm. If we're looking at it in Chicago parking ticket <laughs> parlance. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she got booted. So let's turn our attention to Clear Skies Tim. Did he die a virgin as he feared? No, I don't think so. 
Yeah, I don't think so either. No, but when, by the by the end of the show, as he as he becomes uh, the leader that he that he is, I think that will open up many avenues for which he will have many a fulfilled relationship going forward. I think so, anyway. He found himself, and once you find he found that confidence, I think he'll he'll be he'll be fine. I agree. I feel like his is a story that has a lot more in front of it than behind it. Definitely. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Jeffrey, you look like you disagreed wholly. No, I was just looking for a an obscene joke to make about finding yourself and dying a virgin. <laughs> and I couldn't I couldn't quite find it in time, so that was like that was frustration. <laughs> and for you listening at home, you will never get to see that facial expression. Also, since I'll be editing it, I'll go back and decide if I want to even leave that in. <laughs> you may be sitting here wondering what we said. Next question. Do we ever get to meet the illustrious Professor Machina? Nope. What's up with that? I thought about it a couple of times. Uh, We almost did in the Exclusion Day Carol, and then that changed. So yeah, no. Jim. Yeah? uh, We have very intelligent listeners. Right. But perhaps for some of our younger listeners who have not yet read the great works of literature... Professor Machina is named after Deus Ex Machina. What is a Deus Ex Machina? Deus Ex Machina is a god in the machine. It's when uh, plot lines just kind of resolve. When someone comes in and says, hey, this is fixed. Aww, it's a meta joke. Yeah. So Professor Machina's gun, or, or Ray, mm-hmm. that uh, Caligari came out with is sort of like, hey, everybody, <laughs> problem solved. We got this special super duper technology all of a sudden. And then Chamberlain. Of course. <laughs> because Chamberlain. I, I will because say, so in the, and this will actually go into a, a I think there's another question about, about uh, how much of the seasons were planned ahead of time. In like this, the season two time, when like before we kind of decided how we were going to plan things, in my mind, I was setting up Professor Machina would be a character who would appear in a robot apocalypse storyline, which was also why the uh, elevators kept messing up, was the elevator was going to become sentient and lead a robot apocalypse. And then Ma- Professor Machina, as a as a person who worked on machines, she was going to be sort of the Herbert West of that storyline. You weren't afraid she was going to escalate things? Oh, <laughs> I want this alternate timeline. So, oh, the elevator would be a, a character? Yes. Thank you for not making me design that. <laughs> You're welcome, Ryan. <laughs> oh, yeah, I suppose I should thank you. I shouldn't thank him. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was mostly Clayton diving full body onto that <laughs> plot grenade. <laughs> I want this story, yeah. right? All right, next question. Maybe I missed it, but do we know about Andrew's backstory? Why is he an orphan, and who raised him? I don't think we ever got into it. Andrew Snidge Origins? Uh-huh. <laughs> the gritty new series. <laughs> um, I, I, so I have always thought of him um, kind of not only as an orphan, but maybe as one of the policies who was raised in, like, um, a not even a group home situation, but in a like crash, in a like just a big hall with like 15 or 20 other children, all of whom were bigger and older than him, 
with only kind of minimal security camera observance from adults. Um, and that he, you know, it, when Andrew starts the story, he deeply, deeply wants to belong. And if he had grown up kind of all of his life being on the outside or being the kind of the runt of this this group and never never having a family unit, um, kind of biological or heart life constructed, um, that would kind of like set that up nicely, I think. I, I had this theory that as a young person, he thought he would follow the pitchin' by snitchin' program, but he was too young to understand exactly what it was meant and what it was for. And in this situation where he has no power, he thought that could be a way to get back at these larger, older kids around him. And so him becoming a snitch just molded itself into his personality and his name, and therefore became Snidge. I would counter, actually. I had imagined uh, that rather than being in a group home, he was one of those children that was perpetually reassigned in order to maximize the efficiency of his upbringing and his family unit. And because of his interest and dubious uh, acumen for science, he was constantly literally letting uh, his family units fizzle out. And so he was considered a liability and kept getting replaced and replaced and replaced. And so that was part of what drove him to always want to belong, but also being so desperate to prove himself as a scientist. There, there's actually kind of going off on that. The idea of like heart life assigns, I mean, we've, we've gone into, and especially with uh, human resources, the idea that heart life assigns uh, cohabitation based on what's most efficient. So if two people think they want to raise a child, well, we can we can arrange that without having to, or we can facilitate changing your mind about that by giving you this child that already exists, which is going to convince you that no, you don't want a child, and it's most <laughs> most efficient for you not to. Um, and so, like Andrews, just like keeps getting assigned to different families, who then give him back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Woof. But it sets that up perfectly. It really does. Especially his desire to be uh, to, to to call Elizabeth mom and to be to be a part of that family. It, it's it's also interesting though to note that, and I think this kind of goes into just how we crafted the story. Andrew is actually approved. He's not an unapproved progeny, as far as we know. So he's like the, There's that extra level of. He, but at least he's still a member of the company. Yeah, Snidge is definitely like in the system. Now, is he? Is it that Snidge is a couple of years younger than Nathan, and so, or is is he a couple of years older? So he's already past the point where he's taking his all of his tests for career placement and stuff like that. I don't know. I don't know which is more interesting, but like. You know, either either Snidge is out trying to get more scientific experience before he has to take the science entrance exams, or he has already taken them and is finding another way into science by because we first meet him when he's trying to get into the science fair gang. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I I kind of imagine it being one of those technical oversights where technically he never took any exams, <laughs> and and so like. 
he's just not in that system. Like they never put they never put his name. He he is in a database of like still registered as a child, and they never they never took the step to like make him an adult. Oh no, snitch! <laughs> that explains so much. Yeah. I'm gonna go get Ansel. Yay! Yay. Ansel is here, everyone. Hey, what's up? Not much. Welcome. Ansel, I feel like you should introduce yourself and then Jeffrey can splice it in and it'll be like you were here the whole time and just really quiet. Uh, Hi, I'm Ansel and I'm the narrator for our first city. No? Yeah? We ready for a new question? Yeah! Let's do this. Okay. um, Can you confirm that Dora and Switchblades are now together Together is with a capital T, in case anybody's unclear about that. (laughs) At the end of their story arcs. It seemed that way to me, but I'm hoping it's not just wishfulness on my part. Ellie, do you have an opinion on this topic? I do. Um, I think that Switchblades and Dora do uh, wind up having a life together. And I think that their relationship has been a very valuable growth experience for Switchblades. But I don't know if they necessarily ever have a romantic relationship because I've always felt like Switchblades was asexual. Um, I did not write a lot of Switchblades Dora episodes, but um, I th- the idea never occurred to me. But I kind of love the idea uh, of those two falling in love. Um, however, I do agree with Ellie. I think that if they did have a romantic relationship, like... That's not a very healthy one, at least if Switchblades is where she is right now, or, I mean, where we ended the series. Like, you know, she's still real stabby. (laughs) (laughs) And I... (laughs) I mean, I think that Dora um, also is is somewhat... um, She's so different in her view of the world, and I could see her um, having love for many different people, maybe even, you know, not not like physical love, but like consider an animal to be like a very uh, dear, like family member. Um, so she might have relationships that like we don't traditionally have in this world. I did love how many questions people had about Switchblades and her uh, relationships. Uh, I know there was a fair amount of shipping between Switchy and uh, apparently now Dora, which is awesome, but also uh, Caligari as well. I, I loved being a focus of intrigue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that um, a- as um, both a producer and a director and um, kind of working in the writer's room, I had a number of different like perspectives on, I'm gonna gonna move over to Caligari and Switchblades. And and I I wanna say this and not invalidate anything you said because I think uh, the idea of Switchblades being ace is great and is is, like tracks and is very interesting. Um, When I directed the episodes where um, there was one episode in particular, um, I think, where Caligari leaves Switchblades frozen um, at the top of the tower in the lab. Like, when I directed that, I didn't really think anything of it. And then when I edited it, I was like, oh, 
they were making out. Oh, how did I miss that before? And I don't know what it was like, and I don't know if it was on purpose or if it was just something that came out in the performances for me, but uh, yeah, um, I kind of listening to the performance, I was like, oh, well. Um, So I guess I'm I'm on that that train. There was something, Ellie, in the way you just said that that made me think that it is like the great Tessa Thompson recently said about the great Janelle Monet that they uh, vibrate on the same wavelength. I like that. Yeah, isn't that nice? I really like that. Yeah, it's like a really nice way of like explaining a relationship that's not about whether or not they sleep together. Yeah. But it like expresses the intimacy. Right? 100%. Yeah, yeah, totally. Anyway. Can I throw in a little, a little extra perspective that I had playing Simon. Oh, yeah. Simon kind of winds up in this weird, like, lopsided triangle (laughs) where he's, like, living with or near these two women, one of which he has this, like, like, unhealthy, like, unrequited love lust for, which is never, never, ever going to, like, happen for him. But, like, Simon is also, like, the, the kind of weirdest like violent conservative fear monger character <laughs> you know he's like he's a real disaster prepper and so <laughs> like while while he is like just on the outside of the bubble of like having romance in his life i kind of like that he winds up tagging along with them because like he gets that sort of human interaction that he denied himself, you know, basically being a loner all those years. So it's kind of cool. Like, he he gets to warm himself by the fire of their affection, uh, even though he never, like, gets to hang out on the stove. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what romance is, right? (laughs) Wow. To to put it another way... S- Simon is second Emerson. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> well, and I always, I always thought it was interesting about Simon that he was the, the, he's the guy who thought that there would be zombies and then was right, <laughs> and then had to spend the rest of the show dealing with the fact that he no longer had anything like he had no further apocalypses to deal with <laughs> that he was ready for. Yes, it's a shame. Jeffrey, that there were no other apocalypses <laughs> for Simon to react to. So I don't know if this, th- okay, I guess this is not canon, but Simon and Herbert West appeared on a crossover episode of Improvised Star Trek, uh, which is a, a great improvised. It's like, it's like D plus canon. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Enterprise D plus canon. <laughs> it's like a DC Elseworlds comic. But like, you know, I mean, we didn't write anything. This is all improvised on the fly. And there's like a sort of jerk character on their uh, starship. And Simon and he bond over like torture and xenophobia. So like Simon's Simon's hatred of the Woken maps onto hatred of like aliens and robots and and basically anything that he's not familiar with. Oh, good. Also, also just for the record, uh, in that episode, Herbert West ends up inventing the Borg. (gasps) Oh, right. I forgot about that. (laughs) That makes perfect sense. It's a a really good episode. You should go listen to it if you haven't. And you should go listen to Improvised Star Trek because they are wonderful. 
Yeah, I feel like, um, oh gosh, I was going to go somewhere with Simon, um, which is usually a bad plan. Oh, oh, that's what I was going to say. I feel like the other thing about Simon and uh, and his like conspiracy theories is like, and he is right, and that's difficult for him, but he's also like not right through any fault of his own. Like, I feel like like a zombie apocalypse happens, but certainly not for any of the reasons he thinks it will. And so, like, it's yeah, he is. He's he's the he's the stopped clock rather than the prepper who like prepared for just the right thing. Technically correct. Yes. The best possible kind of correct. <laughs> <laughs> there there is a recurring theme in in our fair city that I just put together of of all the conspiracy theories are actually true. Cause Simon's with the woken apocalypse and then everything Sandy says. About the, the comes ant true. people. About the oh, ant yeah, people, yeah. about the time travelers, yeah. uh, about... Abominable magmen. Abominable magmen. Yeah. Is there is somebody conspiring oh. about carnivorous mold? Like, there's no such thing as mold? Uh, well, that, yeah, that's the... I that's, think that's more corporate propaganda than conspiracy theory. The, the third yeah. one was uh, reanimators. Oh. Oh. That's right, yeah. I forgot about that. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Can we go back for a second? So there are abominable magmen? Oh yeah, there's a comic. Oh, that's right. God, I forgot about the Abominable Magman comic. And and the Spookies episode. <laughs> that's right. Do you need to go do some homework involving a, a bucket and a plunger and some oatmeal? No, I'm not doing it. <laughs> Can yes, I I'm do t- it? I'm totally doing it. Can I help? Yes. Yay. Let's leave right now. We'll just call that Sound Designer's Corner. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next time with more listener questions. The Fable and Folly Network where fiction producers flourish.